Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another session of Remote Bible Teaching with Dr. Larry Crabb, brought to you by Larger Story. I'm Kev Crabb. Thanks for joining us today. We started this about five weeks ago as, uh, as the coronavirus became something that we became part of our lives. And um, Dr. Crabb felt it would be nice to do something like this. And I think it's been super fun, Dad. Um, today is actually our second session of a four-part series on, the, on Ecclesiastes, Job, and the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. Last week, Larry introduced that to us. And uh, today, he's going to be talking about the Ecclesiastes experience. So, Dad, take it away. Thanks. Okay. appreciate that, Cap. Well, folks, welcome to a cheery message on the spiritual value of experiencing a meaningless life. How's that for a marketable beginning? Well, in this Saturday night four-part series, as Kep just mentioned, it's really what it's about. It's about a bumpy road, and more biblically, it's the narrow road, but about a bumpy road that leads us to the life that we were created to enjoy. And now we're ready for message two. Well, tonight, what I want to do, I'm going to review a little bit for message one in just a moment, but I want to look at what Solomon had in mind when he wrote Ecclesiastes. That's the way I read the Bible. I try to get inside the, the, the writer's mind, knowing the Spirit of God was inspiring the writer, giving the writer the freedom to be who he really is and who he was. But still, the Spirit of God is seeing to it that what the Spirit uh, is, that these writers saying what God wants to be heard. So I want to understand what Solomon had in his mind under the Spirit's inspiration when he wrote this very difficult, pessimistic-sounding book. Now, it's true that some scholars believe that Ecclesiastes was written by somebody else. There are a number of folks that believe, and this is very possible, that there was another wise man, not as wise as Solomon, perhaps, but a wise man who knew Solomon's thinking and realized it was so important that he decided to record it in what is now known as the book of Ecclesiastes. But either way, whether Solomon wrote it or whether somebody else was recording Solomon's wisdom, either way, what I'm really wanting to know, quite obviously, is why God apparently, as I read Ecclesiastes, why God apparently wants us to feel the emptiness and futility of living under the sun. A very favorite phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, living without any sense of involvement from God who, in the metaphor, lives above the sun. So you kind of block God out almost and ask, well, what is life like when you just live a secular life? What is it really like? Now, what's that like for a Christian? we got to think about that. So I want to see just why we're supposed to be actually experiencing emptiness and futility as we live under the sun on our way to enjoying what Solomon later talks about in another book, the last one we're going to consider in this series, the Song of Solomon, the Song of the Songs. A little bit of review here. In last week's message, I introduced that the route to real life laid out in the books of the Bible, first Ecclesiastes, then Job and the Song of Songs. That's a real good pathway to understand spiritual formation in my mind. Um, I wanted to understand how that could become the, 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 the route to life, even though it's painful, it's difficult, it's hard. And I took my cue from Peter Kraft. I think I mentioned him last week, a wonderful, brilliant Christian philosopher whose favorite book of mine is Three Philosophies of Life. And just to review quickly, I talked about, based on taking my cue from Peter Kraft, I talked about what I choose to call the Ecclesiastes experience, which I might put this way. It's an inescapable, you can't get away from it, an inescapable sense of boredom 
when we're honest enough to realize that nothing available in this world ever can satisfy our deepest desire. How does boredom, the boredom of Ecclesiastes, lead to real life? That's the first thought. And then we talked about Job experience. That's the second thing we're going to look at next week, which I read to be is the despair of suffering, of hurting, maybe physically, certainly emotionally, maybe both. And it's, it's a despair of feeling like I'm going to be hurting without any promise of relief from this particular pain in this world. And I'm not very comfortable about that. How, how can we understand that despair, <clears throat> which seems to be an unlikely uh, soil for the growth, for the blossoming, the spiritual fruit, how does that work? That was another question I left you with after the first message. And then, of course, we get into the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, and the, the Song of Songs experience which I take to mean, we'll look at this later more carefully, but just introductorily, <clears throat> it's really a strange, <clears throat> but a welcome realization that we're on track. Even though continued boredom and despair is being felt, we're really on track, even through that kind of boredom and despair, to be freed to love God as our richest treasure, no matter what's happening, and to love others as our most meaningful calling. That's how I see these three books. <clears throat> well, opening thought, reading the Bible, going to church, doing good for others, and practicing spiritual directions all have their place in living the Christian life. But if I'm reading Ecclesiastes and Job correctly, then I would suggest this, that without encountering the boredom of pointless existence in this life, and without encountering the despair of misery that nothing relieves <clears throat> we're not going to get deeply in touch with the quiet, purposeful joy of living in love. Well, with that introduction now, message two. And I want to ask some questions. <clears throat> I want to ask questions about the Ecclesiastes experience. What's it like? What's it mean to experience Ecclesiastes in your own life, in your own soul, in your own heart? Why is it an experience that every honestly self-aware person is going to endure? It's not just for the few favored saints, it's for all of us. And how does God's Spirit <clears throat> use the apathy, the listlessness, the boredom, the lack of motivation that we sometimes feel? How does He use all that to move us ahead on the Spirit-led journey to living more like, well, like who? Well, like the man of sorrows. That's how Jesus is described. How are we going to live more like the man of sorrows coming through Ecclesiastes and Job and getting into Song of Solomon, where we live more like the man of sorrows who stayed true to his mission, who found his purpose and his hope in loving well, in struggling in a way that freed him to love well? So what do we do with all that? <clears throat> well, as I was preparing for this, um, this second talk in this series, I really had planned without any question mark at the time, that I was going to look over the highlights of this 12-chapter book, Ecclesiastes, and underline a few verses in what some scholars see as the three sections in Ecclesiastes. Let me just review the three sections in Ecclesiastes to get into the book just for a moment. Section one in these 12-chapter book, chapters one and two, in section one, Solomon makes it clear that no one can come away from experiencing life on earth without becoming a realistic pessimist. Now consider the second verse in chapter one, 
very famous verse, everything is meaningless. That's how Solomon begins the book in verse two. Well, if everything really is meaningless, then the question is, why bother with anything? After, here's a quick illustration of this I just came across recently. After conquering the world, Alexander the Great is said, this is probably true, not guaranteed, but it's said that he requested, he directed that he be buried with his naked arm hanging out the side of his coffin with his hand empty. What he wanted to say to the world when he was dead, he wanted to show the world that the world that he conquered left him feeling completely empty. There was no point to anything in his own personal life. Nothing seemed to matter. It added up to nothing. Well, that's section one, convincing us of that truth. Well, then I thought, well, I'll go into section two, rather obviously, which we people believe, and it makes sense to me, are chapters four through 10, the bulk of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in these chapters, Solomon drives the point home that whether you enjoy a great marriage, as I do, by God's grace, obviously, whether you enjoy great pleasures, whether it's sexual, whether it's good eating, whether it's wonderful vacations, whether you enjoy great pleasures, great knowledge, great service to others, you're, you're sensitive to being good to other people. In the middle of all those legitimate joys of life, legitimate meanings of life, chapters 4 through 10, Solomon is insisting, if you look deeply, you realize something is still really missing. Nothing you do or achieve is ever going to fill the void in your soul. So you must live in emptiness. Trying to fill that void, as Peter Crape suggests, is like trying to fill the Grand Canyon through by throwing marbles into it. It just can't work. And then section three, chapters 11 and 12, and what I hear Solomon saying in this, he's telling us that in no uncertain terms, he's telling us this, that a life lived to seize opportunities, if this is your priority, if you're seizing the opportunities that this world provides for satisfaction, you're really very foolish. And Solomon's insisting that it's wise, you want to be a wise person, you got to draw from supernatural resources to have a hope of living meaningfully in a meaningless world. Well, that was my plan. I was going to devote this message three to preparing for this four-part series and tending to do what I could to make this message of Ecclesiastes clear and to teach the book in 30 minutes, a rather impossible tax, actually. But as I soon, as soon as I completed message one last Saturday evening, something happened that changed my plans. Last Saturday night, when I finished teaching this introduction to this series, I believe, and I really sincerely mean this, that I entered into the Ecclesiastes, the Ecclesiastes experience. It was no longer an academic topic for me. Not that it was before, but after the talk I gave, I was right in the middle of the experience of Ecclesiastes. And it occurred to me when I was pondering that this week, how I felt this last weekend, rather than teaching Ecclesiastes in this message, it seemed that the Spirit was giving me the opportunity to live its message in this particular talk. So let me now say what I can to give an upfront look at a slice of what the Ecclesiastes experience, maybe in a minimal way, but a very real way, looks like in at least one Christian man's life. Well, in preparation for message one, I really worked pretty hard. I always work hard to, to, to teach the Bible. It's a real responsibility to teach it well. And I worked hard, particularly hard, for last week's message. 
And although I knew I'd be, I would be overviewing Ecclesiastes and Job and the Song of Songs, I spent most of my time in Ecclesiastes in preparing for last week's message. I studied my favorite commentary on Ecclesiastes written by a man named Michael Eaton, an Old Testament scholar, a brilliant man, a very scholarly commentary. Spent a lot of time in his work. Spent a lot of time in Peter Kreef's book, Three Philosophies of Life. And I slowly read through all 12 chapters a number of times and just pondered and prayed and tried to get what it's all about. I had no idea as I was doing all this preparation, I had no idea that it was a setup. That's how it feels to me now. It was a setup for me to feel the Ecclesiastes experience of frustration and boredom as soon as the message was completed. Now follow me in this. I thought about, I thought really hard about what I highlighted as the theme verse of all 12 chapters. This was all preparation for last week. Chapter one and verse 13, a verse that most of us know, after searching for what life was all about, doing a diligent search with his brilliant mind, of Solomon, he declared in verse 13, God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. And it occurred to me in retrospect that rather than letting that verse sink into my self-awareness, I distanced myself from whatever it meant by trying to explain it. Explaining truth is very different than experiencing truth. And in chapter 3 and verse 11, I got into more trouble with trying to explain because we're told by the wise king that God, and I quote this now, that God has, quote, planted eternity in the human heart. Well, in trying to explain things, I put those two verses together. Um, God dealt a tragic existence and he's put eternity in your heart, eternity into our hearts. And what I took from that was that because I'm a human being, because you're all human beings, Christian or not, that we have a capacity to long to explore the eternal, the infinite. There's something bigger than us, but we can never figure it out. And that's the tragedy. We really can't get hold. We can't understand deeply or fully at all what eternity is really all about. We need to understand the meaning of life and we just can't as we live under the sun. And I thought, well, here's another passage of the Bible that directs us to believe that there really is a larger story being told. I'm speaking on behalf of LargerStory.com, Larger Story Ministries. And it's a story that our smaller story of a life in between our birth and our death really doesn't make any sense. And I underlined that teaching as vitally important. And I thought, well, I'm going to really drive this home in message one. With that thought farmist in my mind, I put together that message. And last week, I presented it believing that I had come up with something rather important from Scripture, but something that would not be easily received by others, not easily received by me. So let me keep my distance and explain it. How does God bless our lives with good things that make life comfortable? Is that what he's up to? Well, Ecclesiastes says, well, that's not, that's not kind of how you're going to experience your life on this earth. And here I was saying that a painful experience as I was preparing for the talk, a painful experience of discomfort is necessary if we're to ever lay hold of what is available in the Song of Songs. Now, when I taught message one last Saturday, I don't know if you felt it or noticed it or thought about it, but I was feeling pretty good. I love to teach the Bible. But remember, Jeremiah 17, 9, which says that the heart above everything else is deceitful. And looking back on it now, I think my heart was operating at full tilt and being deceitful because I was unaware that as I was teaching, I found all this sentence. This is very important to me. 
I was unaware as I was teaching last week that as I was teaching, I was trying to be heard rather than offering what I believe the spirit could use in my life and in yours. I was less concerned about my soul, less concerned about your soul, and just wanting you to hear what I had to say. That was kind of my mood as I was teaching. Now, I felt pretty good about that. I like explanations. I like to be clear. I like to teach. In retrospect, I think I was feeling more like a wise teacher, little hint of arrogance there, rather than a surrendered and humble servant. That wasn't my mindset, and I didn't even know that it wasn't as I was teaching last week. Within literally minutes of completing my sermon last Saturday at 7 o'clock my time, whatever time zone you're in, by the way, did you hear the phrase, my sermon, completing my sermon? Yeah, not God's word, but my teaching, my sermon. And right after I finished it, a sense of futility descended on me. It really did. I can't explain it. I don't know why, but I closed my computer. I walked downstairs. I'm up here in the loft in our home in North Carolina, and I just felt lost. I felt empty. I felt void. I felt purposelessness. And I thought, well, why? Was I just too complicated? Did I not speak well? Was I not clear? Maybe do I lack the gift to make deep truth accessible? Well, maybe I do lack that gift. But I had no idea until I thought about it a little bit later, quite a bit later, I had no idea of the pride that had been involved in energizing my talk last week. A pride that was really a demand that I be heard, recognized as a good teacher who's worth listening to and appreciated. Was that going on in me at that time? I didn't see it, but I see it now. My fear of not being heard felt a demand to be heard. It, it fed a demand to be heard. I had enough sense to realize that only God's spirit can open anybody's eyes to clearly see his truth. I know that. So at the end of the talk, I was just feeling let down by God, my demand to be heard. I didn't think the spirit had done his work and I was frustrated. I did my part, but God didn't do his. And as I was pondering that a little later after the initial Saturday night experience, which by the way, lasted all day Sunday, but Saturday evening, I remembered a I remembered a poem written by a man named Stephen Crane, who was a nihilist, some pronounce it nihilist, a man who believes that there's just there's nothing at all to life. It's a step beyond existentialism. There's no meaning that can even be discovered or created at all. And he wrote a poem. And let me just read it to you. It's very brief, just four or five lines, but it describes what I was feeling last Saturday night and all day Sunday. Here's the poem from Stephen Crane. A man said to the universe, sir, I exist. Nevertheless, replied the universe, that fact has not created in me the slightest feeling of obligation. God, I worked hard. Didn't that persuade you to do your part in this thing? Did you feel no sense of obligation? Well, I know I can't obligate you, but shouldn't you have worked with me on this project of giving this talk last week? Well, for the rest of Saturday night, I was feeling that way, and I wanted nothing more to experience relief from the agony of feeling just lost and useless and empty. And I didn't feel good at all. I just wanted something to distract me from those feelings, to get rid of this. I wouldn't feel it as much. Well, what I actually did, this is how I spent Saturday night after I talked to you in that message. I watched two hours of television, mindless television, as most television is, and I went to bed. That was me after I tried to teach the Bible. I woke up Sunday morning. 
No church to go to, thanks to the pandemic. And I don't think I'd have gone if the churches were open. The listless, listless, angry sense of boredom lasted all day. It was the Lord's day. I made it my day. Had you asked me, if you'd have been with me and you'd have noticed that I was just listless and sort of angry and petulant and feeling sorry for myself and weary and bored, had you noticed that was my mood, which was not hard to recognize, if anybody could have recognized it, but if you had seen that, and suppose you'd have asked me, well, Larry, do you, do you still believe everything you teach? Do you believe the gospel? Are you eagerly waiting for the for heaven as your soon-to-be-released book is talking about? Is that really alive to you now? Uh, you seem like you, you don't believe it anymore, Larry. Do you really believe that? All the books you've written and all the conferences you've, you've led and the sermons you've given, do you believe everything that you've taught and everything that you've written about? And if you would have asked me those questions, let me just tell you, I would have felt profoundly missed by you. I, I would have felt, didn't you, didn't you see me where I am? Couldn't you be with me where I am as opposed to demanding I'd be somewhere else? I wouldn't have liked your questions at all. I would have found some way to dismiss you and just get away from you at that point. Well, Sunday came. I was living on Sunday, all day Sunday, progressing nowhere. I began to feel less self-pity, though, as the day wore on and getting closer to Sunday evening. I began to feel less of the self-pity that had dominated my emotions up to that point. And I began to realize, well, this is where I am. It's not a good place. I don't like it. It doesn't reflect the work of the Spirit in the way that I want Him to work in me. Is He working in me through this Ecclesiastes experience? Is this useful to His purposes in my life? I didn't know. But I started thinking about that. So this is where I am. This was late Sunday afternoon into the evening. And I think that humbled me a little bit. I was in need of being humbled. And it made me, let me put these two strange words together. It made me hopefully desperate to be somewhere else. I was willing to be where I was. I wasn't rejecting it. I was accepting it. I was embracing it, but believing that God wanted to take me someplace else, but I couldn't rush him. It was his call, not mine. I couldn't will myself to be in a better place. I couldn't do that. And that made me think of a quote from William Barrett, an unknown man to most of us, but he wrote these words, philosopher, it is better to encounter one's experience in despair than to never encounter it at all. Well, I was there. I was experiencing this the, the despair. I was encountering it and wasn't enjoying it. But if Barrett is correct, there's something valuable about encountering yourself in despair and never feeling despair and staying on top of things and always making life work and always finding some way to feel good and always reciting Bible verses and singing to God be the glory and whatever else you can sing to make you feel happier and doing fine. Well, as a humbled, desperate man, at that point on Sunday, late afternoon, evening, I, I chose to be where I was in the unfelt presence of God. I still wasn't feeling him. But I really chose to be where I was in his unfelt presence, knowing he's there. He's never going to leave me, never going to forsake me, whether I feel him or not. And as I chose to be where I was, acknowledging, telling the Lord, what he already knew, of course, what I was feeling, and just wanting to exist where I was in his presence, I think that was the first time I prayed since my talk finished on Saturday night. 
And I wish, as I look back on that moment last Sunday night, I wish that kind of prayer could be viewed as a formula that always persuades God to quickly lift somebody, to lift me, into a better place. It's not a formula. There's no formulas with God. There's no do this and God will do that. Nothing works in that category. But in his timing, and it's always his timing, his sovereign timing, God does respond because he does love us. For whatever reason, and I can't explain it other than God's choice, I began to sense his realness. I really can't put it better than that. I felt quietly alive. I wasn't jumping up and doing cartwheels, nothing nothing close to that. I don't think that song of songs, we'll get to that later. But I did feel alive in a very quiet, meaningful kind of a way, not excited, but aware of a real sense of rest, maybe peace. Where I was was where I was, and I could rest there because it was there where God was working. And I felt strangely content with where I was, knowing that there was something developing in my soul that God was doing. I was aware, and this was probably struck me most clearly at all, most clearly of all, I was aware that God had not given up on me. Here I was, 75 years old, Christian for 67 of those years, psychologist, somewhat well-known Bible teacher, author of Christian books. But in that moment, none of that mattered. All I saw myself as was not all those fancy PhD things, I was God's well-beloved son, as much loved by God the Father as his eternal son. That became very real to me. Hadn't been real at all Saturday night. Hadn't been real Sunday until late Sunday afternoon, actually more into the evening. Well, I woke up Monday and wrote what I now want to read to finish this talk. I want to read to you what I believed I could hear my heavenly father saying to me, as I was living in the Ecclesiastes experience. And I hope this is an encouragement to you because some of you may be right there right now. Maybe you're feeling desolate. Maybe you're feeling pointless. Life isn't working very well for you at all. You're feeling empty. You feel your life isn't going the way you want it to. You're feeling futile in your efforts. Nothing's filling your soul. You're sad. You're lonely, whatever the case might be. What God wants to say to us, what God said to me, and I believe, I didn't hear his voice literally audibly, but I believe it's true, was something like this. Listen to these words that I, as I pondered, I I wrote them out. So I want to read you what I think God was saying to me late, uh, beginning late Sunday night, and then Monday morning as I pondered it. I wrote this out last Monday morning. God speaking now to me. You experience life as unpredictable and dangerous. Your brother died in a plane crash. I could have prevented that. I didn't. Your mother developed Alzheimer's, leaving your elderly father without the joy of his wife's companionship in their final years together. I could have prevented that. I didn't. You contracted cancer two kinds. I could have prevented that. I didn't. Larry, you have no basis for believing that I will protect you from further, even worse difficulties as you grow older. The ups and downs of life feel random to you. They're not random, I know what I'm doing, but they feel random to you. They make no sense to you with your limited mind. I do not want you to balance your blessings with your hardships 
hoping to find contentment that blessings outweigh the difficulties in your life. And in so many ways, that's true. I got a lot of blessings. And if I had to compare blessings with hardships, I'd put blessings on top of the list. But even those blessings, they're going to end. You're going to die. Remember what I said in chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, that it's actually better to spend your time at a funeral as opposed to living to be at a party. A foolish man thinks very little about death. I'm paraphrasing, but this is in Ecclesiastes 7. A foolish man thinks little about death. A man thinks about death. Because thinking about death, you realize this life is going to end, a new life is going to begin, and then you're going to get in touch with the purpose of why you're alive now in a way that's going to count for then, for eternity. God goes on. As you live in the seeming randomness of good times and bad, as you experience the boredom of emptiness in your soul that nothing in this world feel, fills, let that experience raise possibilities in your mind. What if there really is another world that you can't see? What if there really is a good story that's unfolding in the middle of your despair and your boredom? What if I really do exist? And really, if I am, what if I really am a rewarder of those who passionately seek me, even in your boredom and despair? What if I really do reward folks that pursue me? What if one of my most defining characteristics is my radical generosity, which sometimes you don't feel at all, a willingness, this defines me, a willingness to give and give and give again what I created you to most enjoy, but I must prepare you for that enjoyment because you're too numb in your soul to feel it. I've got to wake up your soul with Ecclesiastes and then with Job. What if my son has made it possible for me, the holy God, to welcome you into my presence just as you are right now. And the last paragraph that I've written here as to what God is saying to me, I have inspired Ecclesiastes to introduce you to the utter barrenness of life without knowing me and serving me. The Ecclesiastes experience, which you just tasted and will taste again, is your opportunity, it always will be your opportunity, to seriously wrestle with the emptiness of life and to look beyond what you experience in life for a stability of hope and meaning that only through my son and by my spirit, I long to give. The song of songs experience lies ahead in this life. That's what I heard from God. Again, my, as I hear those words, I really can't see a plan B. If that's plan A, there's a part of it. I'm not all that drawn to, but this is God. We're speaking through Ecclesiastes and Job and through many, many other passages in the Bible. There's no plan B, and I understand that, but there are times that choosing plan A is not easy. Who knows? Maybe in a few minutes after this talk, I'm going to sink into another deeper, more miserable Ecclesiastes experience. I don't think so, but I can't predict it. And the Job experience lies ahead. Hey, there's some good news for you. But tears are for the night. Joy comes in the morning. The Song of Songs experience lies ahead for me. And actually, I'm tasting it. And it lies ahead for you, whether you're tasting it or not. And it lies ahead for us in this life in measure 
and it lies ahead for us fullness forever. That's not a bad deal. It's a great deal. It's a good story God is telling that includes a lot of difficulties. That's what I heard from the Lord. Next week, Job. And I hope you can find some tremendous encouragement in the book of Job next week. Dad, thank you so much for that and for your honesty. I think there's um, a lot of people out there tonight watching and listening that can relate with what you're saying. Um, I know I'm one of them for sure. And I, I look for the Song of Songs experience coming up after we go through the Job experience. So everyone, thanks for joining us this evening. And um, we tell you to, to stay safe. And uh, next week will be the Job experience. Join us the same time. Um, Larry then will be doing one more weekend uh, and we'll see where we're at. We'll reassess the, um, the virus situation and, um, and all that stuff. So thank you guys for joining us. God bless you. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.